0: Ready to go? Yep. Three, two. Twenty thousand feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors, and I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in th- Rip right round your jugular three rip right round your jugular you're listening to feminist killjoys in our feminism pop culture and politics as discussed by two professional killjoys I'm Rachel and I'm Melody <laughs> and today we'll
1: be discussing the theory and concept of borderlands as discussed and explained by Chicana feminism and also some other concepts and aspects related to Chicana feminism and why this is an important time to revisit that world of theory and praxis in this, in this particular political
0: moment. But first,
1: Melody, how is it going?
0: It is going well. I'll keep my check-in short today since we have a lot to get through. Everything's good. I'm back in town in the Minneapolis area. I'm helping my friends with their children this week, just enjoying the muggy summer weather that is Minneapolis. How are you doing?
1: Oh, <laughs> things are things are a lot right now. I'm in the midst of making some pretty intense decisions related to job stuff. So, um, which, you know, some more details about then, then I'll explain right now publicly, but I'll, I'll make sure I let folks know once those decisions have been made. Um, but it's, it's good to have decisions to make, uh, versus the almost full year I spent without really decisions to make. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really, really stressful couple of weeks and I'm hanging in and trying to figure it out. And, um, one of the things I did to sort of address that is got my first Reiki session, which sounds like a really bougie, bougie thing to do, a witchy thing to do also, and also potentially culturally appropriative thing to do, which I'm reflecting on. Um, but my dear, dear, dear friend, best friend since I was four years old from Ohio, Kimberly, she um, months ago got me a gift card to this like witchy healing space in Salem. I did a combo Reiki session, tarot reading and got um, a sp- like a tea blend particular to my my needs right now, and it was like really 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 fucking powerful, and I am really into it. But I'm trying to be reflective of the of the cultural appropriation elements. So, if any listeners get or practice Reiki, I would love to know your thoughts on it. Mel, have you ever had it, or do you know what no, it is? I was
0: going to ask you. You had suggested it when I needed some cleansing, and I did a tarot card reading at that at that point, but. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with Reiki, but I don't know about like doing Reiki reading. So, what was it like? It's it's energy work. So you lie
1: on a table like you would in a massage, and um, mine was long enough that I sort of, I just like in a massage, like you get like the top of your body, and then you turn on your to your belly, and then they do the back of your body. Um, and it's it's energy work and light work, and it's mostly sometimes they use stones that are in relation. It's all you know, all of these sort of non-Western um healing practices, not not all, but many rely on the chakra system. So they're sort of addressing each of these, you know, energy points in your body, and they're literally moving energy around in those spaces. And it was really, really, really powerful. Like I felt shit happening inside my body. And at one point, like I just started kind of weeping. And I started hearing like messages at certain points, I saw colors at certain points. And then the practitioner also sort of Not all practitioners would do this, but the one I went to is like a witch. And so she um, sort of told me the messages and images that she got as she was moving through through my, you know, over my body. It was really intense, really, really powerful. My reading was – my tarot reading was also really, really, really good. Yeah. So it was – it was really good. Kimberly, if you're listening, I'm so grateful for you because I would not have been able to do that without her generous gift card. It was pretty fucking amazing. I feel really lucky that I got to experience it.
0: That sounds awesome. Do you mean that or
1: does it sound too too out there for you?
0: No, I was just thinking that like you're the type of person that could do that because you would, you go all in, you know, with yeah. that kind of stuff where I could see some people be like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. Such as myself, <laughs> just being like, yeah. <laughs> "Well, no, I get some of it out of it, but like you would, you took it all in, right?" That's what I was right. observing. totally, totally, yeah. So
1: that was really helpful, and um, that's so that's it. That's all I'll say because we have a lot to lots to work through today too. Before we get to our topic, mm-hmm. we have an announcement. Do you want to tell the listeners what what our announcement
0: is? Yes, yeah, so our announcement is I'm pregnant. Just kidding, <laughs> <laughs> lol. The announcement is I'm a lesbian. Um, <laughs> also kidding, but. I'm half lesbian. Okay. Why is that funny? It's not funny. Already? Okay. I'm sorry. It's not funny. Why is that funny? I did say a funny <laughs> joke last night, though, that I was at kickball. I play kickball and I was pitching and I pitched really well. I've never pitched before. And I pitched and I was pitching really straight. And I came off the field. I'm like, for a lesbian, I pitch really straight, huh? But <laughs> ch- and then Dakota laughed and was just. I feel like because I'm part of the queer community, I can make jokes like how I'm, it's not funny to be a lesbian. I'm sorry. It was. Hey, can I um, – <laughs> I have an announcement that I'd like to share with what? the listeners. What's we're, that? <laughs> well, it's kind of a threefold announcement, I guess. One, we're almost at episode 100, but that's an obvious announcement. And so, Bring it back. And so we're going to – So part of the announcement is we're just going to take a little bit of a break. It's summertime. The living is not that easy and just going to take a little break to prep mm. up for like kind of a re re mm. not rebranding, but like a, re, a new look, a new sound. I don't know. There's lots Reboot. of things that are going to change. So we're going to go away for a little bit as we do from time to time. It's a great time to listen back to your favorite episodes or listen to one that you didn't get to yet. And then also um part of the reframe of the podcast We're going to have a lot more with our rebrand, but one part of the rebrand that we can share right now is that, and by rebrand, I mean reframe, uh, reframe of the podcast. Rachel and I had a discussion about how the podcast is going, and we don't hate each other at all, which is good. That is good. Yeah. We are going to experiment by working with only two episodes a month or every other week, Because we decided that we get way more excited when we have really solid episodes. And usually those are the ones in which one or both of us have like some really good time to sit down and plan the episode. And when you do a weekly podcast on top of other things, some of that, some of that work can get put aside and we don't like that feeling. And so we want to have the good feeling of being able to sit down and really put together some what I call solid episodes. And so to do that, to foster that without burning out is to move to to an every other week format. So I think that is actually great because it's just going to produce like better. The point is to produce better quality podcasts that just come out a little bit less frequently. Um, so that's some of the announcement. Do you want to add more to that, Rachel? I agree with everything you said. And
1: I'm, I'm excited to bring more solid episodes. And I think y'all are going to enjoy what that looks like. I mean, that does mean it's sort of a change, uh, particularly to our Patreon donors. Like if you Mm -hmm. feel like you need to adjust your donation, like we understand no hard feelings, uh, you will still be getting the newsletter no matter what. So that's still going to happen. And we are going to adjust. We tried to keep make bonus episodes happen, and we just were not consistent enough. So we don't want to promise that anymore. So uh, that Bonus on Patreon is gonna go away. So if that changes anything for you, again, no hard feelings. And uh, all of this said, you know, the, the, the truth is that like, it's hard to do this work and be excited when even though we reached one of our goals that we set on Patreon, we turns out we still can't actually pay ourselves regularly. Um, we did do one payout of a pretty humble, (laughs) humble amount. But the, the point is, is that if, if you are kind of bummed to hear this, even though I think it's, it's it can, it can it's still gonna be really positive to have these two really good episodes a month. But if you are like, "Oh, I want four really good episodes a month, that could be a possibility in the future, but we would just have to make a lot more money is mm-hmm. is the real hard and fast of it.
0: It's a lot more money, but if everybody who listened gave us a dollar a month, it would actually be enough to pay. Us. It's just that a a very small. Maybe you've heard the same pitch on NPR. Uh, Ira Glass says this a lot on This American Life that a very small amount of the listeners for This American Life donate to the show to keep it going. And he always says, like, if everybody would just give us $5 a year, like, we'd have plenty of money. Right. So you're always thinking like oh somebody else is already supporting us and pay, you know, you know there's a lot of podcasts we've ranted about this before that are produced by NPR and so they already have funding, but you know when you're going through your podcast think about who has access already to funds um or media or you know and we're not like we're right. straight up DIY, we're from the bottom up as Drake likes to say. <laughs> Somewhat like that. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, it's hard in a world where there's a lot of podcasts being professionally produced and like we're still the DIY one. And so we're doing this on top of everything else in our lives. And it's just, yeah, it's no,
1: yeah, I think, I think. All, all of this is to say that I mean, we just kind of gave you contradictory information. Adjust your <laughs> Patreon. Also, give us more money. The point is, either scenario is great. They're just, they're just different. Two mm-hmm. episodes a month mm-hmm. is awesome. If we can start actually, you know, sort of, um, I'm a fucking Marxist who thinks it's important to be blunt about economics. Like, if we can pay ourselves, we can we can make more episodes, and that's just that's just it. So that's that's the update on that. Uh, I'm I'm still, like I said, we're both really excited about what we're gonna come back with. Um, and the break's not gonna be too long, so don't worry, it'll be before school starts for all you academics who listen. But in the meantime, you can still hang out with us because what. <laughs> We're offering a podcasting 101 DIY (coughs) ( concurring) e-course. We're so excited about this. This has been in the works for like many, many months, probably close to a year is maybe when we first started talking about it. And we get a lot of emails sort of asking questions about how to do this. And and we're happy to sort of answer those sort of like one off, but we can only do so much in an email explaining how to how to do this work, how to create a podcast from from nothing. And we are both online teachers. So we know how to create a good online course. So we are offering an e-course and the first launch of it will be live. So there'll be like interactive office hours, but then it'll also be available after that if you just want to, you know, sort of purchase the modules. Um, so we are going to launch a- our sort of commercial that we made for that, which we're also pretty stoked about probably within a day of you getting this podcast episode. So keep your eyes out for that and there'll be a form for you to sign up with you won't have to pay up front we will give you the info once you sign up about how to do that and we're super stoked and we're trying to time it so that you can like learn how to podcast basically in july and then start doing your podcast in august especially for the academics or anybody else who sort of views summer as sort of like a project time then you can start of launch by september so we're super super excited We hope you will be, too. Anything else you want to say about that, Melody?
0: Yeah. In terms of the cost, if you're like, oh, my God, it's going to be one of these online courses that cost a $1,000, like, no, it's going to be very affordable, and it's on a sliding scale. So we'll have Mm -hmm. all that set up on the sign-up sheet. You'll see all that. But it'll be on a sliding scale. So you – I mean, we understand. We live that life. So it will be affordable and accessible. And if you have any questions about the monetary aspect of the course, please
1: email us we can most most likely almost definitely find a way to make it happen
0: okay if that's
1: what's prohibiting you
0: sorry can I give one more shout out I need to give a shout out to a very special listener and this is a surprise for you too Rachel you don't even know okay yeah Janie our podcast friend in Australia sent us a care package and oh
1: my gosh Janie we love you so much. Oh, my gosh.
0: Like books and like, uh, ephemeral stuff. Also, I'm going to send it to you, obviously, but I wanted to wait until you um on, on air. Gosh. Yeah. I love that. Janie,
1: thank you so much. You're really the best. Holy camoly. It's I like love the it. best
0: care package, too. I just – it's amazing. So – I'll send it I to love you, it. snail mail style, but uh, just wanted to let cool. you know. And a shout out to our wonderful listeners in general. And also Jamie Yeah, yeah absolutely. Sends us postal mail. It's true.
1: Speaking love of it. snail mail, one more thing. While we're on our break, it might be a good time if anybody's missing a sticker. Maybe that's a good time. Mel, you're mm, kind of sticker queen.
0: I just put together a bunch of sticker packages. So Great. I have a bunch of people that just signed up in the last maybe month. There were there's some donations. Okay. so. I have, I have your stick, you can totally shoot me an email and I can let you know, but I have, if you haven't gotten stickers yet, it's like in an envelope waiting to be sent. Perfect. Okay. So,
1: yeah, I, we're good. that's, I just, I remember now, just now that you had just done a batch. So,
0: but also, um, since we're just shooting ideas out at our listeners, if you all want like merch, like if anybody would be interested in like t-shirts or coffee cups or whatever, let me know. Like I, I've put together some ideas. And so I'm happy to hear from y'all what you would like as well, especially because we're like getting rid of that bonus up thing. And like if there's any other awards for, or rewards for podcasting, like Patreon things is very strange for us. Like it's been hard for us to come up with ideas that aren't more podcasts. So, you know, always feel free to share on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email, phone.
1: Mm-hmm. Let us know. All the things.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Let's go. Transitioning.
1: So- one of the original purposes of our show was to sort of take academic concepts and break them down for listeners. Many of you listening will be familiar with um, Chicana feminism theory uh, and also ways that it's shown up in the world. But we thought given uh, the state of the world and what's sort of occupying the headlines and I'm sure a lot of our minds and hearts right now with the deplorable treatment of human beings trying to cross the border. We we wanted to turn to sort of to to this these profound lessons that that Chicana feminists have have provided us. Um, this quote that I think I've mentioned on air before, uh, bell hook says, "I came to theory because I found in it a location for healing," and so that came to mind when I was thinking about um, melody. Melody suggested this, and, and as soon as she said that, I said, "I literally have been looking up like Gloria Anzaldúa quotes this week, just mm-hmm. sort of trying to process and." Um, you know, make sense of things and get inspiration for how to, how to respond to these things. And so that's sort of the first part of that. The second part is obviously Melody and I are two white women. We are not Latinx. Um, we have had, uh, Chicana feminists on the show before. If you go back, uh, our episode with Salt, which was about Marxism, uh, they talk about being, being Chicana. And so that is a great episode to actually hear. Actual Chicana women talking about the sort of political aspects of that identity, but um, we sort of want to revisit this and just sort of do a more broad overview. And again, as this this is coming from feminist scholars who are white, so that's just the sort of standard positionality note. So that's that's my sort of preface. Melody, what do you want to just share to share why? I mean, it was your suggestion. So what what was in in your mind when you were thinking about talking about this today?
0: To answer that and also kind of to clarify what you were saying earlier, most specifically, I was mm, emotionally struck by what's been going on for a long time with immigrants coming in from Mexico to the United States and President Obama's response, Donald Trump's response. I mean, it's always been not ideal, not what we're about The, we've had previous discussions about DACA and how that is Mm -hmm. not the, the answer to letting people come in, not, again, using this language, letting people come into our country. Right. um, Having people. Uh, be able to be citizens and free here in the United States. The extra added news, especially for international listeners, since there's always borderland news across the world. uh, Specifically, we've been in the United States. Unfortunately, the Department of Homeland Security via, with ICE has been detaining families and separating them at the border. Um, Sometimes children come on their own, sometimes they're getting separated from their parents, and they're being held in camps, detention camps. And so there's like literally children right now in the United States, like alone in these camps, and it just totally breaks my heart. And often, in times of unfathomable news, like you can't process it, you know when there's been really intense shootings, like another one happened in North Minneapolis this past weekend of a police officer killing a a young black man i I think Rachel and I and this is surprising for me because I'm so not into theory, but like I often go back to scholars and sometimes it's speeches by old activists and by old, I just mean our elders, elders, activists. Mm. Uh, and sometimes it's theory to kind of help process what's going on, because the news is just like so overwhelming, that sometimes it helps to kind of have a, I don't want to say like theories detached, but that it's, it feels a little bit less emotionally embedded, even though it stirs up a lot of emotions when you read theory. So I just thought that it would be helpful for the for listeners and for ourselves to talk through this like really awful time by using some theory, like I think it's actually helpful. And that's me, the non theory head saying that. And -hmm. I would also like to add some breaking news today was that the Supreme Court upheld the travel ban that Donald Trump put through. Mm -hmm. So that's another current event or just situation now that people have to deal with that have to that has to do with borders as well. Can you
1: remind us what The details of that will – like, who and how, what that will
0: impact, what that will look like. Yeah, so basically the premise is that there are particular countries that it doesn't matter if you have a visa or you're able to travel. You literally cannot come into this country, Yeah, which includes a country such as Syria, where there's a civil war going on and, like, people want to escape. And the – right our president is using fear such as well the terrorists that are killing the people in Syria could then hop on a plane and come here right and terrorize us which has not happened <laughs> right the places that it has happened the the people that have come from countries to come over here and terrorize us quote unquote they're not on this travel ban list so it's just uh it's just ridiculous but that is what the travel yeah. ban is about so It is yep. It is now according to the Supreme Court constitutional.
1: Yeah, that's the world is
0: shit.
1: Yes. On that note, we want let's start. Let's start with talking about this concept of the border and uh, this
0: bullshit. Shall we? Let's.
1: And this isn't the first time. I, I should also say, like, there have been other sort of activists, including like anarchists from the beginning of anarchism, that. We're rejecting notions of borders. Um, and it's related to, you know, property and private, you know, private property and and claiming land. And it's a colonial issue. But we're talking about it specifically through this, this idea of borderlands that Gloria Anzaldúa theorizes, um, which is about sort of multiple things. And really for Anzaldúa is about identity. But I want to step back before I get to that sort of part about the idea of having a borderland identity where you're sort of living, straddling multiple spheres. And I, and I want to step back to talk first very simply about how the border is a social construction. So, I mean, Melody, do you want to, for anybody tuning in, we can give our, so this is kind of a flashback to old episodes. What's sort of 101 of like, what is it? what do we mean by social construction? Like how is the border an example of a social construction?
0: Thank you, Professor Tiffy, for that excellent question. Mm-hmm. It is a social construction in that we create borders. Let's not use Mexico as an example right now because, well, there's literally a border and there's agents at that border. Think about like walking through a neighborhood and how there's like imaginary borders. Like, so you're not, you're not supposed to walk onto somebody else's lawn. You're not supposed to go onto their sidewalk and hang out, right? And so I think about this when I hang out with a toddler because the toddlers have no idea what border- borders are. And so they'll just mm-hmm. like walk into somebody's yard, go up their stairs, you know, cause they don't, what is it? There is no actual physical border there, but we've created mm-hmm. the social construction of a border to mean, you know, you're allowed to go or not allowed to go across the border. That also actually that idea of, of going into somebody's yard being a border that you're not supposed to cross is a social construction also between countries. Mm -hmm. Especially when you think historically, how (laughs) this country was not ours, it was it was Native Americans, country, property, land. And so we have created these borders that yes, have a physical entity, but also are just social constructions, that there's nothing inherently capital T true, or factual capital F factual about these borders being the borders. They're made up, they're imaginary, but the people with hegemonic power are the ones that have been able to enforce it. Right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And another side note about the this fact that this is obviously in the US this is stolen land from native americans but even these sort of racial identities rely on geography in a particular way so there's this really great book called the white scourge and i highly recommend people read it that really complicates notions of Mexican identity, Native American identity, and also um, Black Americans to talk about how if we're relying on these geographic categories, we can't really do that, particularly when we think about the way that Mexico and what is now called the U.S. have been in sort of, you know, there were land wars, right, about where those borders would actually end up. So there's certainly people in the, you know, in the s- Southwest in particular who uh, their ancestry is both native and mexican but they might be considered one thing or the other because of the way that the border was you know socially constructed to be drawn and one in you know in, in power plays and war they would be considered one thing instead of the other even though actually ancestry is much more complicated than that but ancestry continues to rely on these geographic borders so um the white scourge highly recommend reading that i'll put it in the newsletter as a resource on that, let's get back to Dua, one of the sort of canonical Chicana feminist theorists. So she's referring to this term borderlands as this geographical area that is most susceptible to sort of this hybridity that is neither fully Mexican nor fully the United States. She also uses this term to explain the sort of identity of people who can sort of not distinguish themselves as either in one world or the other. And this is very much related. So Chicano feminism is sort of an offshoot of the Chicano movement, uh, or Mexican-American justice movement is, is sort of what that means, which is really this assertion of uh, – Mexican identity within the United States and and sort of this was emerging sort of a, like the Brown Berets, for example, is the sort of it's not so simple to map this on, but uh, it's not like we can't just say they're the Mexican version of the Black Panthers. It's not quite that, you know, it's not exactly that, but it's sort of that kind of militant response using identity in a really revolutionary and re- liberatory way. So she's, she's contributing to this, to this, that's activist work. And she's contributing to this activism by, by theorizing this identity as sort of not existing as one or the other, but existing as both. And that, that results in this identity of multitudes. And the way that sort, for example, in her writing will manifest is that she intentionally will switch between English and Spanish as a very intentional act of resistance because she's not going to cater to, you know, English speaking readers when you know sh- there's 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 a reason that she's in the united states or in the united states in the first place there's a reason these immigrants are in the united states for for in the first place and english in itself is a language of colonization and so what does it mean to cater to a, coloni- a colonizer's language what does it mean when the the reason that immigrants come to the united states a large part of the time is because of the instability that uh, the US government has created in Latin and Central Central America and Mexico, which to explain that comment is you know for here's one example we send our labor corporations send our their labor to Mexico or Guatemala or wherever it may be. and I witnessed this when I went to Guatemala with a labor delegation to get really, really cheap labor and then they'll take the products back to the US. So there's no money going in. It's just really, really low paying like poverty wage, Uh, uh, hourly rates and then we get all the profits in the U S from this exploited labor. And so then that is, that is one of many examples of how we create instability in Latin and Central America in particular. I'm going to pause. Melody.
0: Hey, Killjoys. Just wanted to intersperse for a second to remind you to subscribe to us if you haven't already. What an awesome episode to become a subscriber. Also really important to become a subscriber because when we come back from our break, you'll know because it'll just be sitting in your podcast app. While we're on break, take the time to leave a review on iTunes of us. We love reading those reviews. We read, it, we read them on air and it really helps us spread this podcast to other people. On the social media tip, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. On Facebook, we actually have a really cool community page. So if you search for it, search Feminist Killjoys Community WTF Power exclamation And it's a closed community group where we just talk about episode ideas, topics that came up in the episodes. Rachel often like, engages in conversations. It's super rad. So join us there. On Spotify, we have a mixtape aptly called the Feminist Killjoys PhD Mixtape, so make sure to follow that. If you have extra dollars and want to support feminist media makers such as us, come to Patreon, find us there, and become a subscriber. You can also leave us one-time donations via PayPal, which we also appreciate. Just go to our website, fkjphd.com, and click on the birdie to leave us a one-time donation. While you're there, you can also check out our episode archive, where we have show notes and other information that we cannot verbalize. On our show. If you would like to email us directly for direct communication, hit us up at fkj.phd at gmail.com. And last but not least, the non internet way to get in touch with us is to call us at our US number, which is 414 858 7818. Back to the show. So, can I, as the non theory person in this duo, Can I just apply what you were talking about to an example that I'm aware of about mobility? I would love that. Great. While Rachel is really good at reading theory books, I need to read other people's research as they apply theory to kind of understand theory better. Which is totally fine. It's just my way of doing it. So a colleague of mine, Do Lee, is finishing up his dissertation called Delivering Justice, and it's amazing in so many ways. I think what Rachel, what you were just talking about, he talks about very directly with use of undocumented worker, undocumented people as bike delivery workers in New York City. Mm. And so mm. all of the things that you just talked about comes up in their daily lives. And so Dole's dissertation is all about working with and advocating for these bike delivery people who are watched, surveilled, um, and cross all sorts of borders in New York City in a way that white people wouldn't in terms of being surveilled and policed. Mm-hmm. Another kind of theoretical framework that I wanted to throw out there that Dole uses. So he gets the, so he gets the concept of what is called shadow mobility from another scholar named Tim Cresswell. And so Tim Cresswell has a chapter in a book called Citizenship of Worlds of Mobility, and it's in the book called Critical Mobilities. But this shadow mobility concept is about how people who cross these socially constructed borders have to move in a different way because mobility is central to citizenship. So if you get citizenship, whatever that means symbolically or through a piece of paper, you are then able to be more mobile. So for example, if you were, if you were from Syria, but you had a United States citizenship, you would be able to travel. But if you're, if you just have a Syrian passport, then you are unable to travel to this country. And so right there, you can see how mobility works through citizenship. But internally in the United States, citizenship is also tied to mobility. And so bike justice scholars such as Do Lee will often talk about how not having a certain citizenship of the world um, makes your mobility a lot more difficult. So I often focus on African Americans and he focuses on undocumented workers through the bike delivery services in New York City. And so having shadow mobility means, and I'm just going to quote his dissertation here, that um, it restricts the mobility of marginalized bodies as disorder so that the citizen mobility of ideal bodies becomes special. So the ideal mobility is the, those of a citizen. And so mm-hmm. he's noticed that the people that work within a shadow mobility are actually spotlit, And Mm police. So for example, the police, you know, they know who these people are because they stand out, because they don't look like the typical citizen, which I should say, Dolí also argues is white, right? In the United States, it's like Mm -hmm. whiteness. So whiteness is citizenship. Everything else is questionable. When delivery workers are working, they are policed and are asked, for example, to wear reflective vests, you know, that other bicyclists are not asked to wear. And so they all all of a sudden have all of these rules and laws and regulations put on them, because they're going through the world as not a citizen, as not a citizen, and kind of in the shadows of mobility. So I wanted to throw that in there, too, because I thought that was really interesting. And it also works with the immigrants right now crossing our border, and how much of it is understood as a shadow mobility.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I hope that your colleague turns that into a book i would love to read that i really appreciate that thank you and it reminded me this notion of citizen citizenship is obviously completely reliant on the the construct of the border because you could literally like have a baby in england and that baby would magically have england you know british citizenship mm-hmm, mm-hmm if you just happen to go into early labor on a vacation or something. And that's, that's how arbitrary it can be, right? Because you're on like a particular plot of land. And the citizenship question is interesting because I, um as I've been doing these sort of academic interviews, um, a lot of times in women's studies departments, I'll get questions about teaching transnational feminist stuff mm-hmm. because that's not, none of the sort of titles of my articles make it seem like I do anything transnational. But I find that question kind of frustrating because I do prison research and Number one, the fastest growing prison population in the US is immigrants. So right now, when they say detention centers, I mean, they're, they're fucking jails. They're prisons, right? Like it's, they're, they're cages. It's part of our jail system. And second, because this notion of, so not only do we have actual non US citizens that I'm, that I'm, you know, studying and working with in my research, but also we have this notion of citizenship that is stripped from people who, go to prison, right? So in most states, you are no longer considered, you don't get citizen rights anymore. You don't get to vote. You don't, you know, like, and which is, you know, one of this, you know, this sort of foundational aspects of citizenship is this right to vote. And that gets stripped from you. So not only do we have technical non-citizens in our jails and prisons, but we also create non-citizens of people who are technically Citizens. Oh, um, can I
0: just add yeah, another no. example of how they yeah. get stripped of citizenship? Is that it's really hard to find a job as well. So you're basically completely you're undocumented in that. I mean, you aren't, but like you're traveling through. Your this documents
1: country. are 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 shit. Right? They're yeah. they're like. Um, stigmatized in a way that almost the equivalent of undocumented, right? Yeah. So you it doesn't have, get you, anywhere.
0: you have actually a lot of documentation <laughs> to represent who you <laughs> right. are, but it's, it's producing the same effects as if you were undocumented. Because you, right. And I don't,
1: we should nuance that. Like, it's not exactly the same. Obviously, there's differences, but it's, but it creates, it becomes a question of documentation, which is why there were the things like the ban the box rule, which also had problems and all of these things. So anyway, that, that's just an, you know, this, this is sort of a problem of the academy. It's like, I understand that you like want me to like say that I, you know, went to Iran and did research on, you know, studied the sort of other non-Western woman. And like, I don't, I haven't done that. And I probably, I don't know that I will. It's such like a, it's, it's such a rigid conception of what is U.S., you know, American studies and non-American studies. Cause what, you know, what does that even imply? Anyway, that's a side, a side rant. Yeah, no. So I, I think those, I think those applications are are good to work through. Can I move on to some other concepts that Chicana feminists brought us? Please do. So another thing, this is also from Ansel Dua. She talks about Napantla, and that translates to, uh, it's a Nahua word, which translates to in the middle of it or middle. And it's kind of explained as a spirituality. One thing I really love about Chicana feminism is that they are unapologetically inserting spirituality into their theory. And there's a whole section of – it's like an introduction. And it's kind of – it's very clear that they are existing in the academic space where everybody's expecting you to sort of either be like a post-structuralist or a Marxist materialist. And they're saying this is material – so when Marx – when we say materialism in a Marxist sense, that means like grounded in the actual things that are happening versus like post-structuralism that is – have we ever done an episode on this? I don't think we have. This is a very short version. No, poststructuralism is—it's like ideas. It's discourse. It's like discourse creates reality. Whereas Marxism and materialism is no. We have to look at the conditions that, like the condition, the conditions are the reality. Like the economic situation is the reality. It's not, you know, what what is said about economics that is the reality. It's it's the it's the on the ground. Thankfully, there are ways that people have learned to blend those things for more expansive analysis and activist and organizing work. That's a really simplified version. So I think it's in the introduction to Borderlands, actually, that she is basically defending her stance as as a materialist. But she's using the experience of these Latina women, mostly, and the women who live in this Nepantla, this middle space, to explain, the, you know, to, to theorize. And so this, this is a materialist thing, but she's also inserting part of their lived reality is sort of spirituality, right? Is, con- you know, calling on ancestors, is thinking about living this hybrid life in 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 a way that Nepantla in particular is, is saying... Clearly, it's a, pa- it's a result of colonization and really fucked up politics, but how can we look at this in sort of an asset based way where we see the sort of beauty and, um, magic and like literal magic and power that comes from, Having an, having an identity that is not just singular in, in its understanding, but dual and, you know, multitudinal. So I really love this blending of spirituality and materialism because they're not, they don't have to be separate, right? So she talks about how they're these people as threshold people. So if we think about this idea of like liminality and the, the potential power in that and also the ways that it can be really, really fucking difficult when you're living one foot in a world that, you know, where people say, speak fucking English or get out, you know, shit like that. So clearly, this is not to romanticize the this existence, but it is also to say, like, look at the strength and power and spiritual practices and all of these things that have that have come from this, this this Nepantla. Yeah, that's another really lovely concept that is obviously related to this, this notion of, of the borderlands.
0: Can I talk to you about another application of the borderlands and mobility?
1: Yeah, I think that'd be great.
0: Okay. So there's this like ped urban planning thing called desire paths. And it sounds more fun than it is, but a desire path. Okay. So do you ever like walk somewhere and you see that the grass, there's a path that peds have basically – walk people who are walking have like turned into a path they just like walk over the same area of grass yeah yes okay so like in the urban planning world that's called a desire path oh we planned the sidewalk but it looks like everybody who actually walks around here isn't using the sidewalk they're taking the shortcut and so that's the mm-hmm. desi- that's like actually what pedestrians are desiring as the actual path Mm -hmm. Um, And so Dolib uses that concept, that urban planning concept of a desire path and flips it on its head and talks about it through the borderlands, middle space, constantly moving across borders in the United States, in New York City. And so Mm -hmm. I just want to read a little bit about that. So he says that the disorderly and transgressive mobility of immigrant delivery workers, they trace their own desire paths symbolically, but the desire paths of these workers are rendered illegible with concrete and asphalt in streets, language barriers, and the production of immigrant criminality. Reframing transgressive mobility as desire paths could indicate instead that, quote, and he's quoting another scholar, desire is productive because it flows on. Mm. Nomadism, so being nomadic, moving around, therefore, is not fluidity without borders, but rather an acute awareness of the non-fixity of of boundaries. It is the intense desire to go on trespassing, transgressing. Mm. We'll get the the full citation in the newsletter and online. So, I don't know. You were going, huh? Was that just good listening, or like how what what pulled you? From? <laughs>
1: both I was I was trying to be a good listener but also no I just I just appreciate that and I mean it makes sense it's like who gets to move their their body where and I mean this goes back to this came up in in the Carrot interview shout out to Carrot I think we've mentioned her interview like almost every week since she's been on. Yeah. Um, so we generated a lot of cool stuff in that. But it completely relates back to that example we gave of like you get to just like nature and the forest can be amazing as a as a hiker, generally like a white hiker. But what does it mean to move through nature when that nature is the desert where you're trying to like literally hike for your like for, for life, for your life? It's not hiking. It's like right. we don't call it hiking, right? We call right. it like trying to cross the border. Yeah, it just makes me want, want to read this dissertation again.
0: Yeah. Who has the privilege of creating desire paths? There, mm-hmm. I think the question or what he's getting us to think about is who can create desire paths and who can't. And so he's arguing that that immigrant workers do want to create their own desire paths, but mm-hmm. are stopped by, for one, being seen as all, always already criminals in mm-hmm. in urban spaces and so it's really hard mm-hmm. to create the path of mobility for yourself when you're always up against those trans you know i don't even want to say microaggressions they're like full-on aggressions structural,
1: structural. repressive yeah. norms yeah yeah
0: yeah for for sure
1: yeah they're structured they become they can be interpersonal but they're a result of these structural conditions mm-hmm. which is kind of a microaggression but yeah a super intense one so let's shift into the praxis and yeah. practice and activist work. Mm-hmm. So that's some theory to help us maybe just feel like, I don't know, grounded a little bit. Yep. You know, how can this help us in the current crisis as either people who are experiencing this liminality, this repression, this violence themselves, I'm, you know, I'm not going to assume anything about our listeners' citizen status or people who have family members who are experiencing this or those of us who are trying to be in solidarity slash accomplices. So what do you think? What does this bring? How does this inspire you sort of as an activist?
0: So obviously, I don't come from an undocumented family. I'm not a recent immigrant. My family has immigration, obviously, in their past. So just speaking as like an activist, a human, a person who like cares deeply about children and the plight of immigrants in this country, I feel like this theory at, at the beginning, like when I was starting to learn about this theory, it really helped build up my cultural competency. And I think even more so continues to help build up my cultural competency in terms of understanding how other people are experiencing this land that we're on. Myself included, experiencing being on stolen land all the time. But it helps – to understand that experience. So of course, like hearing people's stories is really moving. But the theory almost gets inside people's like, thinking how they actually experience the world, which is really hard to articulate. And so I think mm-hmm. this theory really helps me understand deeper than just a, a verbalized story of how people can understand moving across these borders, both enforced by enforced by federal agents, and also just the social construction of those borders. Mm hmm. And I was thinking that, you know, theory isn't really what people go to in crisis. But that is exactly what I said that I did when when we are learning about crises. I think sometimes when people are actually in crises, it is so emotionally raw that they don't get to that deeper level understanding that Borderlands discusses, if that makes sense. But I also Mm -hmm. don't want to take away people's – I don't want to say that people are unable to, like, have a theoretical framework when they're in crisis. When you're in crisis, very raw emotions, you're telling your story. But then people that are not directly experiencing that trauma, it helps us understand what's going on by reading this deep theory. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Well, it's not what the news is giving us. I mean, we're not going to get – you know, the sort of reflection of the folks who are being detained and, and Mm -hmm. violenced and deported, the way that we get the benefit and the gift of the reflection of uh, these largely mostly women that, that, I mean, obviously we're referencing Ansel Dua a lot, but we could also at the end here, I'll give, I'll give a list of some others that folks can check out. They have had, had the access to be able to write and publish their reflections. And so we get to, we get to have that when we don't, when we don't get to hear from, from people, because that's not what the news is going to give us. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I would agree with all of that, particularly for me, just this, the plain fact that the border is a social construct, I think is really, really fucking important to remind people who, who are still like, yeah, well, you know, there are paths to citizenship. Like they could have done it the legal way. Like, to just like go back and be like, okay, let's like, let's back up. Like, how is the US the US? Like, how were these borders constructed in the first place? Then we have to go back to colonization of native land, right? And then we have to talk about the way that the, the, the sort of shape, this like pretend drawing on a map. That we have, like that, looked really different, uh, you know, a certain, you know, x number of years ago, until there were wars and power plays, and that changed who was considered Mexican and who was considered American, and like that. These things are so fucking arbitrary, at, you know, when it comes down to it. But we we've put all this stuff onto it because of because of people who have power. So I think that in and of itself can really help people reflect and understand, and also. When we have to step back into that, we have to ask, that's like going back to the root, my favorite Angela Davis quotes, radical simply means grasping at the root. What is the root cause of the immigration, you know, quote unquote crisis, which it is a crisis now given how they're being treated. But a lot of times people will talk about the crisis as the fact that there are immigrants coming into the country. And, you know, the, the cause of that is because of Western imperial powers <laughs> exploiting third world and non, you know, and disenfranchised nations, including Latin and Central America. I think that these theories help us help us get to all of that. I want to end with one more thing from from our dear friend. Do you have anything else you want to say before I bring Jesus into the conversation?
0: No, that was great, Rachel, take it away with Jesus. So,
1: we've talked about Jesus on the show before. He I feel him sort of I feel him with me a lot, but mm-hmm. he it, I mean, in my heart he is Chicana, queer, feminist, amazing, funny, kind of snarky and sassy human. And just one time we were just like having a grad school conversation in my friend Angela's living room and just like talking about Chicana feminism. And he just sort of like – he didn't have long hair, but he might as well have like flipped his hair. And he's like, (laughs) if Chicana feminism taught me anything, it is that I am amazing. And we all laughed. And so just to end on that sort of thing I was saying earlier about the sort of asset-based part of this, like it's not like – Chicana feminism is not only like, look at all this, look at all the horrible things that have happened to us, because because certainly there are a shit ton of horrible things that have happened to Latinx and Chicana people, but also like, look at this magic and this resilience and this power and this beauty that exists sort of in spite of it. And so um, I just wanted to end with Jesus's words. Some other folks people can look at at for kind of feminism, Cherry Moraga, Ana Louise Keating, Linda Alcoff, who is actually the mother of one of my dear friends. Shout out, Giuseppe. I love you. Sandra Cisneros and Shayla Sandoval are some of the big names. You can look into the Brown Berets, the United Farm Workers Movement, and much more. That will all be in the newsletter. If you don't already get a subscription to the newsletter, sign up on Patreon and give us a book and you'll get the newsletter. RWL, sing us our
0: song, Melody. Reading, watching, and listening with Rachel and Melody. I am reading
1: an article called How I Broke and Botched the Brandon Tina Story by Donna Mis- Minkovitz. <gasps> this... Yes, yes. Yeah. Say, say more, say yeah. more. I read the original article, the news article. Did you? Yeah. So for those of you who haven't seen this circulating or don't know about the original piece, there was a piece in The Village Voice – by this woman, Donna Minkovitz, about Brandon Tina, who is the trans man that the movie Boys Don't Cry was based on. He was a trans man who was raped and murdered in Nebraska. Originally, very shortly after the murder, Donna writes this story where... She is misgendering him, suggesting that his transness or, you know, I don't, she wasn't even using the word trans, but she was saying the sort of like gender performance of, quote unquote, pretending to be a, a boy was a result of um, sexual trauma. And the list goes on. It was really sort of everything opposite that journalism is supposed to do in the way that they treat trans people that they're writing about. And it got a lot of flack from trans and other you know, like queer and radical and allied people, including Leslie Feinberg, author of Stonebridge Blues, which is an amazing book that everybody should read, who was furious at at the treatment that that Donna gave Brandon. And so Donna Minkovitz just released, decades later, a story sort of apologizing and trying to do a second attempt on telling Brandon's story better and major trigger warnings because Brandon's story is fucking tragic and devastating. So yeah. you're going to want to prepare yourself if you read all of these details, but it is, it's a really intense read. And I think it's D- Donna wasn't exactly a turf because that cultural, well, she, definitely she was writing like a turf, but it's, I don't think she was, she wasn't taking the political position of turf. No. This, this, is partly a result of the, to- the era, right? Mm-hmm. There wasn't mm-hmm. – trans identity wasn't nearly as talked about, understood, known. People weren't – people were identifying identifying as transsexual, not transgender, gender queer, and gender non-binary. All of these things like didn't exist in vernacular or culture, at, at least are, they weren't articulated that way. And so that's not me giving her an excuse because obviously she, she doesn't deserve that as like an excuse, but it is just giving context – it's it's interesting and it and it brings back uh, oh, my point in that was saying like i i hope some fucking turfs that exist today read this and maybe could be persuaded because donna is really taking ownership of like here's where i was coming from thinking that this you know who what i who i thought was a lesbian was just like really damaged and like actually like i'm understanding that ex you know that's actually not 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 wasn't brandon's experience at all and so it would be amazing if this could fucking get Through to some TERFs. Acronym check Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist is what TERF stands for. Um, I'll link it. Check it out if you are prepared for that. Watching. Oh gosh, I have nothing new to share. I don't remember if I talked about how my partner has never seen friends, so we're watching friends from the beginning. Why are you making him do that? Because it has a lot of redeemable qualities. It has a ton of problems, it's really homophobic. At times, it is a bunch of white people in New York City, where which is not, you know, exclusively white city, obviously. So it has problems. But it's funny. And I grew up – I grew up with it. I grew up with it. And he wanted to. He said he wanted to watch it. Listening to – I returned to Smog, a.k.a. Bill Callahan. Do you know Smog, Mel, or Bill Callahan? Same person. Smog sounds super familiar. I mean, it was a band that you would have seen in the era that – like was okay. our era of like indie rock music. Okay. Um it was it's like really lo-fi and pretty sad. Okay, that's <laughs> yeah that's what not I'm all of it
0: when I hear that. Okay.
1: But it I totally listened to it when I was I'm using the word emo, not in like what emo emo music was considered sort of in that era, but like when I was feeling like emotional and deep and like wanted to like write poetry or something or just like be really sad. I would just listen to Smog. So anyway, he was all over. Bill Callahan is who Smog is. He was all over the soundtrack of that Wild Wild Country documentary that I keep talking about that I finally finished.
0: Yeah, that my and Portland it was really, friends also are like, you have to watch that.
1: Yes, yes. So you really do have to watch it. But anyway, I was really fascinated by the juxtaposition of Bill Callahan and the story, which like took place before Smog existed, and it was about this like new age sort of hippie spirituality. And it was coupled with this sort of like lo-fi kind of Americana, sad folk. Well, actually, they played some of his happier songs. Anyway, the point is, it really struck me and it made me want to listen to him again. And I was trying to think through that. So that's that's my list. What about you?
0: I am reading. Hey, guess what I'm reading? This is actually true. I'm reading Doe's dissertation. Yes, that makes sense. Because I'm actually on his dissertation committee. um, Rad. As an outside reader. So I'm reading it. To give him comments and be on his own. Oh. Cool. I just love his work. Like I've always loved his work. So I'm just so excited for him. And yeah, when I was reading it, I was like, this is going to be a book. Like this has to be a book. Yeah. And if he doesn't have the motivation to do it, I will like continue to cheerlead for him until yeah. it is a book. I'm watching cool. Spirit Writing Free, which is a female protagonist based computer animated show on Netflix <laughs> that my buddy Liam likes to watch. He's not okay very well. <laughs> Not what I would like choose to watch myself, but as a media scholar, it's like obviously interesting to like watch that show and analyze it about the three right. women and like what they represent and how men come into it. Right. And they have these like random romance things. And I'm like, why are you bringing romance into this? It's a kid's show. Like there's – Right. These are adults having romance. And- Ugh, anyways, there's things about flirting yeah. and stuff that just bother me for another time. Yeah. I'm listening to Fallout Boy because it was in the <laughs> car that I was using the other day, somebody else's car was in the CD player and then mm-hmm. Of course then you have to listen to a bunch of Fallout Boy. So. Right. <laughs> so good. You can make fun of me for the Fallout Boy like I made fun of you for Friends at any time.
1: Yeah, I mean like, yes. I will have to say I mean I was I was cooler than Fallout Boy. Like I I listened to Saves the Day, not Fallout Boy. So yeah. Yeah. I'm just teasing. I mean, that is real. Like, I definitely thought I was better than it. But, I but, understand. 100%. It's okay. <laughs> well, we'll see you all in July 2020. Sometime. Just kidding. <laughs> Bye. WTF. Power.